Hello, you're listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. The church is located at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. Thank you for joining us today as Dr. Pollock opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. Please turn your Bibles to Jonah chapter 1. Of course, we will remember that Jonah has risen up to flee from the face of the Lord. He goes to Tarshish. And he seeks to go to Tarshish, doesn't he, in that uh, ship from, from Joppa. And then we'll read from verse number 4 of the Word of God. But the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was like to be broken. Then the mariners were afraid, and cried every man unto his God, and cast forth the wares that were in the ship into the sea, to lighten of them. But Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship, and he lay and was fast asleep. And the shipmaster came to him and said unto him, What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise, call upon thy God, if so be that God will think upon us that we perish not. And they said every one to his fellow, Come, and let us cast lots, that we may know for whose cause this evil is upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell upon Jonah. Then said they unto him, Tell us, we pray thee, for whose cause this evil is upon us. What is thine occupation, and whence comest thou? What is thy country, and of what people art thou? And he said unto them, I am an Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. Then were the men exceedingly afraid, and said unto him, Why hast thou done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then said they unto him, What shall we do unto thee, that the sea may be calm unto us? For the sea wrought and was tempestuous. And he said unto them, Take me up and cast me forth into the sea, so shall the sea be calm unto you. For I know that for my sake this great tempest is upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to bring it to the land, but they could not, for the sea wrought and was tempestuous against them. Wherefore they cried unto the Lord and said, We beseech thee, O Lord, we beseech thee, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not upon us innocent blood. For thou, O Lord, hast done as it pleased thee. So they took up Jonah and cast him, into, and cast him forth into the sea, and the sea ceased from her raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and offered a sacrifice unto the Lord, and made vows. Tonight I want to, if you like, take a step aside from the story of Jonah, and consider the surprising conversion of these sailors. The sequence of events in Jonah chapter 1, God calling him and Jonah fleeing, brings the runaway prophet into contact with these pluralistic pagan mariners. Verse 16 seems to suggest that the men are so impacted by these events and by the words of Jonah that they come to faith in the one true and living God. These are converts brought to faith. It says in verse 16, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and offered a sacrifice unto the Lord, and made vows. Converts, surprising converts brought to faith in the Lord. 
We could say they are the most unexpected converts in the most unexpected circumstances. They're not found sitting in a gospel mission under the Word of God. They're not being raised in a Christian home under the teaching of sound parents. These are men who have no thought of God, and yet God has thought of them. And God comes and intervenes in their lives in a most spectacular fashion. Of course, they're not alone in the Bible story. Who'd have thought that Rahab could come to faith in Jehovah? What about Saul of Tarsus, or the jailer in Philippi, or even in our book, the Ninevites? Perhaps the Ninevites and their salvation is the greatest display of God's power in a company of sinners. We could even call it perhaps a revival. Now that may be the literary purpose in the story of the mariners. It may be the writer is telling us these events to open our minds to the possibility of what God is going to do in Nineveh. Again, remember that in Jonah chapter 1, all you know to this point is that God has told Jonah to go and cry against the city. At this point, you do not know necessarily that God is going to open the hearts of the Ninevites to receive the word. It may simply be another prophet coming and bringing words of judgment against an ungodly people. And so perhaps the writer here, Jonah, is opening our eyes to the possibility that God will do something spectacular in Nineveh because God is a God of supreme compassion. He's a God that's able and willing to save the most unlikely of sinners. You see, when God reveals himself, he brings sinners to their knees and causes them to confess the Lord to be their God's. The salvation of these men, I believe, illustrates the mercy of God, God who saves the unlikely in the most unlikely of ways. Or present circumstances, uh, the season in which we live, leads many to think that people are so hardened that they will never come to faith in God. You've lived through this over the last number of years. It seems increasingly impossible for people to come to faith in the one true and living God. Will God ever move again in our midst? Well, when we have those seasons of doubts and despair, and we find ourselves struggling to pray and hope, let us never forget the ways of the Lord. Jonah goes down to the ship, and he himself has no idea what God is going to do in the lives of those who are above the deck. It is God's wonderful grace. And so as you think of this, I just want to look at two very simple thoughts. I want to think about the transformation that is presented and then the occasion of that transformation. And we'll spend most of the time in the consideration of the transformation. And so it is presented to us. Now some, some question, verse 16, and they really wonder, is this really a description of true faith in God? Is it not just possible that these mariners are amazed at God's power and they are pluralists and so they have no problem with another God to add to their litany of gods? And so when they see God's power, they simply respond emotionally. And so it may even be a temporary thing in their lives. Now, I grant we don't know what happened to these mariners after this account. They fade away in human history, and we know nothing what happens next. 
but the inspired testimony of the Word of God. Remember, this book is written by inspiration of God. And the inspired testimony is such that I believe we should without doubt see this as a description of real conversion, of God's wonderful grace. The text tells us the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And again, I will acknowledge that to fear God can describe someone's sense of terror in God's presence, or it can be that reverential fear of God that is consistent with faith in the Lord. But whether it is terror or reverence, to fear God in the Old Testament can and often does denote faith in the Lord. I say that in part because in the context, the first time we read about the fear of God is verse number 9. I am in Hebrew, says Jonah, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven. And so again, we are, we're, we're, we're forced by the very context to see Jonah's fear of God in the comparison to these men fearing the Lord and Jonah fearing God, whilst now he's wayward, He's a man that's been blessed of God, that's got the mouth of God in his ear, and does indeed walk with God. He is, Jonah is, a true God-fearing Jew. And so what you see again in the Old Testament is the several times when the fear of God is really used as a description of what it is to be a true Israelite. You think of entering the promised land. You think of Moses' words in the, in the book of Deuteronomy to, the, to the, the parents and to the children. Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God, Deuteronomy 6, and serve him, and shall swear by his name, ye shall not go after other gods. And so here we've got these mariners who are crying to every god they can think of, and then they come to fear the Lord. Again, is it not very possible now, this is a de demonstration of their conversion to trust in the one and only God of the Bible. And so the difference is you're either an idolater or you fear the Lord. And here we're seeing idolaters who have now come to fear the God of heaven. You see, to fear God, we know, is foundational to a saving faith and knowledge of God. Doesn't the wise man tell us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom? The knowledge of the holy is understanding. And so to know God is to fear God. To fear God is to know God. And to fear God is the, the very principal part of true religion. We could almost say, in fact, we could say, there is no true religion without the fear of God. You see, it is really a term for salvation in Old Testament language. It is to fear the Lord. And so you see that actually in an unusual place, you see that in the book of Acts. Cornelius is a proselyte. He's come to faith in the God of Israel. Now, I understand he has to be confronted with who Jesus is. And he'll come to know Jesus through Peter's preaching. But before Peter comes, he's described as a devout man and one that feared God with all his house. So to be a God-fearer was to be a proselyte in that sense, and to trust, leaving off your idols, and to trust in the living God. And so in the context of idolatry, to hear these men fear the Lord is, I believe, a description of their salvation and their conversion. Now, again, I'm not slow to acknowledge that there are times in the Old Testament when fearing God is not consistent with faith. 
The Samaritans are described in 2 Kings 17 as the nations that feared the Lord and also served their graven images. And so there were times where there was compromise, and again, there was this idea of an appearance of fearing God, but it was not sincere and real. But when you dig deeper into this text, not only do you have this description that they feared the Lord exceedingly, we also see, and I've taken this term, we see their transformation. And when you put it all together, then I do believe you have an indisputable argument that these men have come to trust in the Lord. Think of the transformation they have in their fear, first of all, in their fear. Verse 5 tells us, Then the mariners were afraid and cried every man unto his God. There we see them with fear of their circumstances. We could say they live in the bondage of the fear of death, Hebrews chapter 2. They realize that death is right on their horizon. The next thing they're going to encounter in their minds is that they're going to die. They believe that is their, that is their likely outcome. Verse number 6, it says, that we perish not. There's the fear of death. Verse number 10 then tells us that they do come to know the terror of God. Then were the men exceedingly afraid. Now, what makes them scared at this time? Well, they're afraid because Jonah gives his testimony that he fears the Lord. Again, note the capital letters there. L-O-R-D, I fear Jehovah, the God of heaven. And then the men are afraid because they see, they see the power of Jehovah that is able to bring about a storm to stop our runaway prophet in his tracks. So they're caused, and what happens in their minds? Well, now I believe they are terrified of the power of this God. He's a God of almighty power who can do this to the sea. And so you see their fear of death, verse number 5. You see their terror of God, verse number 10. And then verse 16 begins differently. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. See the difference there? The text has already told us, verse 10, that they are afraid of God. But now in verse 16 it says, then, and if you're like, only then, after the storm is stilled, then there's a different experience. Not this terror of God, not this fear of God as what God may do to them, but now this sense of supreme reverence for God, a reverent awe of God. Isn't that the testimony of the child of God? Isn't that the pathway that we go in our own conversion? We see our sin and our rebellion. We see to some degree in our heart a fear of death. Again, it's not the case for, for many children raised in Christian homes that they, they have to testify. They, they get to the point, Daddy, Mommy, I'm, I'm fearful of dying. And you have to talk to them, point them to the fact that, yes, because of sin, death comes upon all men. But there's a Savior from sin, Christ Jesus the Lord. But there is oftentimes that sense of fear of death. They come to see the holiness of God and the terror of God's wrath. And if out of Christ, it is indeed a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But in the gospel... 
We come to see Christ's work and we come to enjoy peace with God. We realize that our fear of death is, is something that's in virtue of our sin, but our hope is in Christ Jesus. And because of his work, the fear of death is released. We're, we're free from the fear of death, no longer in that bondage. The gospel brings peace in our hearts. But fear doesn't go away. A new fear comes. Like Psalm 130. There is the terror if God were to mark our iniquities who can stand. There is the terror of God's wrath. But when there is forgiveness, then what happens? There is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. And you see, there is no conversion where there is no fear of God. But God does in his grace, he transforms our fears Fear of death and fear of man, those are replaced by a fear of God, a reverence for God, a realizing that God is supreme and sovereign, a fear that seeks his favor, not to obtain his mercy, but out of gratitude for his mercy. We reverence God, we come to love the Lord, and we do not want to grieve and offend the God who has loved us with such a wonderful eternal love. We're seeing that here. There's a transformation in their fear. Secondly, there's a transformation in their praying. Verse 5, we see them crying out to their gods. The mariners were afraid and cried every man unto his God. There's a desperate hope here in ignorance. They are what we might term pluralists. Pluralist again in modern language is the idea that, well, there is perhaps there is, there is one God, but many paths to the same God. Or perhaps there are just many, many gods. How can we possibly know? All religions are equally acceptable. Any God will do. You know, there's something very fascinating when you look at this. And it says, and they cried every man unto his God. And then verse number six, they wake up Jonah and they say to Jonah, cry, call upon thy God. Do you know what that betrays? The fact they've got to ask Jonah to pray to his God betrays their lack of assurance regarding the presence or the power of their God. You know, the pluralist is exposed here because they realize their God is not real. Their God can do nothing. And they're confronted with that in their time of need. And their lack of assurance is shown for all it is. My God will not be able. My God likely is not real. You'd better try your God for yourself. And so you have this confusion in their ignorance and in their prayers. And yet by the time you get to verse number 14, it says, Wherefore they cried unto thee, Lord, L-O-R-D. They're now praying to God. Here's a confession. A confession of the one true God. A confession of Jehovah as the Lord. Note the theology in their confession here as they pray in verse 14. They are recognizing that God is absolutely sovereign. Verse 14. It could come directly from the psalmist. O Lord, thou hast done as it pleased thee. Our God is in the heavens. He doth whatsoever he pleases. It is the sovereignty of God, and they come to recognize that, and they're praying to that God. 
Now, we understand their concern here is they're going to throw this man into the sea. They're taking Jonah's word for this, and they are. They're fearful. They've been confronted with the power of this God, and they fear for their own lives. Let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not upon us innocent bloods. And so they're asking for God to pardon them, to preserve them, because they don't only see God's sovereignty, they see in the storm a display of God's justice. And God is able and willing to stop people in their sinful rebellion. Hence, in this prayer, they come to recognize their accountability. Sin is real. Punishment is real. But through it all, they also see in this God and Jehovah, they see a God that can be earnestly approached to show mercy. Again, is this not our testimony? That we are saved, we've come to realize we deserve the wrath of God. But as we come to realize we deserve the wrath of God, we also know that God is one who can be approached for mercy. We can plead for his mercy. See, these things surely confirm the nature of their fear of God. When you consider the change in their fear and the change in their prayers, surely it confirms the fear of God they have is real and genuine. Thirdly, there's a change in their practice. Verse 16 tells us they offered a sacrifice unto the Lord. Again, here we cannot be dogmatic. Some doubt the knowledge they had behind the sacrifice. They say, well, this, this is just pagans trying to appease their gods. But the storm is over. The desire of sacrifice is not to appease a God who's angry with them. They've just come to experience the peace of the storm. And back in verse number 5, when they're confronted again with the storm and its heights, there is no mention of sacrifice, but rather casting things into the sea, not to appease God, but to lighten the ship. And so the sacrifice here, I believe, is part of their service as those who have come to fear the Lord. And I wonder, did they come to know that to approach Jehovah, sacrifice is required? may well be the case here, and this is, again, the thought in some of the commentators, it may well be the case here that having thrown all overboard, they vow to sacrifice to God on their return to Israel. Hence, they may well have been properly informed, and they come to acknowledge the true God. They've cast everything there was out of the ship. And so the language here may indicate they offered a sacrifice unto God, unto the Lord, and made vows, and the sense may well be they made vows that they would come to acknowledge God in this way. Hard to be dogmatic, but there's a change in their practice. And I do believe that somehow ever, through Jonah or from some other, other source, they came to know that God can only be approached through sacrifice. And that, again, is fundamental to faith in God. We must only approach God through the sacrifice of his appointed substitute. Old Testament terms, the animals pointing forward. New Testament terms, we go back to Christ himself, the Lamb of God, by whom we come and approach God in reverent worship. And so we see a change in their fear, a change in their prayers, in their practice, and also in their purpose. There is the matter of their vows here. They vow unto God. Isn't that not what the psalmist does? 
I will make and pay my vows in the presence of the people. What shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits? Psalm 116. I'll offer my vows. It is a sense of a resolve and a new purpose to serve God. I think the words here, and me advise, certainly indicate that this is not a temporary thing. It's a determination, a resolution to fear God and to continue to fear God, to leave off their idols and to come to trust and serve the one true and living God. That is, again, what it is to be converted. It is to publicly confess God and to continue to publicly confess God, to publicly worship God and give thanks to God. It is a wonderful account, a surprising account of a wonderful conversion. And see, the transformation is seen, but there's also then very briefly a word about the occasion. It is an occasion that God has providentially arranged. Of all the days, of all the docks, of all, if you like, of all the prophets of Israel, Jonah comes to their ship on this day. He goes to the bottom of their ship, and God has arranged that his prophet lands in their boat. And they're the ones that are confronted with Jonah on the storm of that day. Yeah, I don't want to speculate too much, but I doubt they were the only boat on the sea that time. It's a busy, busy shipping lane. It's a busy sea. The storm is not so localized that one ship is the only ship that feels the storm. But they were the ones in the mercy of God who had God's prophet in their midst. Providences do not lead us to God. But providences cause us to be arrested in our sin when we're then confronted with the Word of God through the prophet of God, we then come to realize there is only one true God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so what you're seeing here this occasion is an occasion that God has providentially arranged that when they hear the revelation of Jonah, they then bring together these two things. They see the power and the majesty of God in the storm, and they don't attribute that power to one of their gods. They realize that power belongs to Jehovah. And they've come to see a wonderful display of the majesty and the authority of God. And then when God stills the storm, they realize this God who is to be terrified of is a God also of wonderful loving kindness and grace. And their lives are spared. And we have the same today. We have the stories, we have the Word of God that gives us the same display of the wonderful power of God. And God is able to bring sinners to their, to their knees, providentially arranging circumstances that they come to realize there's a God in heaven. And then the Word of God comes to their attention. And they confess Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of the Father. Do you doubt that God can save sinners? This is the God of Jonah's storm. And in Jonah's storm, he's pleased to save these mariners, who then can give public testimony, Jehovah is the Lord. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. 
If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. We preach Christ crucified.